it was actually pretty hard for her. I think I hadn't been as honest maybe about some of the hard stuff because I didn't want to sound like I was complaining. I didn't want to waste her time. And I think if I were reading a book like this, it would be kind of devastating to me to know I did everything I could for this kid. And yet they still had to suffer so much. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Emmy Neatfeld was like many high school seniors, dutifully filling out college applications. But unlike most other applicants, she was writing her college essays in her car, where she was living. She was trying to get into an Ivy League school from the front seat of her Toyota Corolla. Neatfeld's family fell apart when her mother, who was a hoarder, could not care for her and put Emmy on antipsychotic medication rather than confront her own mental illness. Her other parent came out as trans and disappeared from her life. Through a tumultuous childhood that included homelessness, placement in foster care, abuse, and assault, Emmy managed to keep her dream alive of attending a top college. She dreamed that it would be her ticket out of misery. She eventually gets into Harvard and goes on to a job at Google as a software engineer, but then leaves after she is sexually harassed by a supervisor. Emmy Neatfeld is the ultimate survivor. But in her memoir, she rejects the notion of being an overcomer. The New York Times describes her book as a remarkable memoir and a detailed critique of the American fantasy that poverty, illness, or any other adversity can be conquered through sheer grit and bootstrapping ingenuity. I began my conversation with Emmy Neatfeld, who is now 29, by asking her to explain the meaning of the title of her memoir, Acceptance. When I started thinking about writing this book, I always had the title. At first, it was so much about this idea of radical acceptance, which I heard about a lot in therapy when I was an early teenager. I was in this institution and these therapy programs where they told the young people who'd come from these difficult backgrounds, you need to accept your circumstances. The cure to your unhappiness and your loneliness is acceptance. And I really hated this idea and I fought back against it. And my goal was to go to an elite university and get out that way. And so the title of the book has these two dual meanings, both about rejecting acceptance and about really striving for it. You tweeted this week, um, quote, 13 years ago, I was homeless about to spend the final weeks of summer break recovering from surgery on friends' sofas, sleeping in my car, and at a shelter. Today I woke up in my own bed, made pancakes, and saw my book reviewed in the New York Times, close quote. And I might add, congratulations on a rave review in the New York Times. Um, let's talk a little bit about that odyssey from homelessness, what led you to that situation, and this childhood in which you were trapped in this um, kind of, uh, you know, closed loop of, of psychiatrists 
refusing to believe what you were saying, having to take medication. So take us back to your childhood. My book acceptance opens when I was the kid. And I was a very ambitious child who believed very strongly in God and in a sense that God had a plan for my life to do great things. And until I was about nine, I lived in a two-parent family. We were middle class. Um, and then when I was nine, my parents separated. And both of my parents had mental illnesses, which when they were together were less obvious. But as my parents separated and I moved in with my mom, who won custody, things started to kind of fall apart in our family. And my mom was a compulsive shopper and hoarder. And within a few years of moving in with her, every surface in the apartment was covered in trash. Our bathtub was filled with empty water bottles, empty peanut butter jars, dirty laundry. And there was nowhere, after a while, there was nowhere to put it. And she saw that I was struggling. And so she took me to see doctors and she had ADD herself. So she told them that she thought that I had that. And what happened is I was medicated at first for ADD and then for depression. And by the time that I was 14, I was on antipsychotics, um, having taken a dozen medications in two and a half years. And so a big part of my journey begins when I was 14 and I left home to go to this eating disorder hospital. And I had had an eating disorder as one of these coping skills to kind of deal with living at home. I'd been telling doctors that the conditions at home were unlivable. For six months, we didn't have hot water. There were mice everywhere. But really, no one was able to listen or come to see our house and see how we lived. And so instead, I did these self-destructive things that got me sent to an eating disorder unit and then eventually to this residential treatment center to never to really return home. And what age was that that you were went away? I was 14. I had just turned 14. Talk a little bit about the reality of hoarding. You know, there's TV shows about it that are very disturbing to me to watch, you know, because I, I I'm, we're clearly watching somebody with mental illness, and yet it's sensationalized and mocked. In, But you experienced what it means firsthand. What is hoarding? Why do people hoard? What, what insight do you have on your mother's illness? When I was growing up, it was the early 2000s in Minnesota, and we didn't even have the word hoarding. It was a couple years before the TV show. And so the only way that I knew how to think about it was what my mom said, which is we're messy. And I just knew that I wasn't allowed to like take people inside the house under any circumstances, especially not anyone from the government. And I lived with this fear that if people found out I could be taken away, the house could be condemned. Um, so it was this really secretive issue. And nationally, about 19 million people have hoarding disorders, but it's still a really big family secret. 
And for my mom, it functioned kind of like an addiction where it was such a powerful way for her to cope. It was just unthinkable for her to throw away things or for her to really meaningfully cut down on her shopping. And there aren't really good cures for it. You know, there's not a lot of treatments that are known to work. And when I was growing up, she wasn't, she was in therapy, but she wasn't receiving any specific treatment at all. And I think that that's really, really common for people with hoarding disorders in America. Talk about your father, who later becomes Michelle. My father was an evangelical Christian for a lot of my childhood growing up. And then when I was nine, she came out as trans and changed her name to Michelle, as I call her in the book. And she struggled a lot throughout her life with mental illness of various kinds. And really, when my parents were together, that gave her a lot of stability. And when they divorced, things became a lot harder. Her transness was a huge issue in the custody battle and the divorce. And she ended up moving like across the country after my mom won full custody. So that kind of was a shadow hanging over my childhood of having, of living with this one parent who had a serious problem. And then my other parent really was not able to be there for me at all. We lost contact for many years. Michelle came out as trans at a time when this was not widely spoken of or understood. What did you understand about your father's transition? I remember the day that she came out to me and I was in fourth grade. Um, my dad was just picking me up after school, another normal day, and said to me, I'm changing my name. I'm changing my name to Teresa. And I was a little bit confused because I was like, are you a woman now? And she replied, yes. And told me that I should use she, her pronouns, but not tell my mom. And adults would assume that I was really shocked or really traumatized. But the truth was, I had grown up in this super biblical setting. And I was very familiar with the story of God creating Adam and then Eve being made from Adam's rib. So I felt like this whole situation kind of had biblical precedent. And I just kind of accepted it and helped Teresa as she as she outwardly transitioned. Was it a source of shame, confusion? Um, you know, how did you process it? This, again, this was not accepted uh, and understood in, you know, in the early 2000s. I think you make the point Oprah had yet to have a trans person on her show, you know, which is sort of the benchmark for when it enters the conventional wisdom. I had not heard of anybody being trans. It was, I think, 2002 when Michelle came out, and it was just something that wasn't on my radar at all. I think because of that, I didn't really have preconceived notions about it, and when you're a child, you kind of accept what your parents do. 
and go along with it. And I had lived in a very patriarchal household where it was like what my dad says goes. And so it just, it wasn't as much of an issue as people thought that it would be. And I think part of that is I could tell that Michelle was really relieved to have come out and that she really, really, really valued the fact that I still accepted her and loved her. And we still had that bond that the transition didn't break at all. When did you first start to experience eating disorders? I started to be treated for them when I was 13. But after my parents divorced, I went through a period of losing a lot of weight. My diet growing up had not been the healthiest. There was a lot of McDonald's every night. Every night we ate ice cream before bed. And when my family fractured, those routines fell away. And I became a vegetarian. I stopped eating nearly as much. So those seeds had kind of been planted. But when I was in the psych ward and I was witnessing people with these different self-destructive behaviors, that was really where I kind of leaned into it, for lack of a better word, and then became really ensnared. You describe going into these psych hospitals, psych wards, as a way for your mother to deflect attention from her own mental illness by saying that your struggles, your failure to adapt to your the, the world around you, which was a world of turmoil and chaos, that it was actually your problem. And no one would believe you. Um, talk about that. And it's, it's a kind of excruciating to read your description of how when you would speak your truth, it was viewed as confirmation of your own mental illness. Now I know that it's a pretty common phenomena to have someone in a dysfunctional family be called the designated patient. And one person is singled out and they're the sick one. And that's especially easy to do when someone is a child. Because I was a minor, they could do anything to me. Like I could be locked up for any reason. But even when people knew that my mom had a problem, they couldn't make her do anything. And it was really easy for me to be hospitalized again and again, in part because I was doing self-destructive behaviors. I was scratching myself with safety pins, making myself throw up, doing these behaviors that anyone would say are not good to do. What Where the problem really became, came up for me was that when I tried to talk about what was going on at home, the louder that I spoke up about these conditions, the crazier I looked. And so... Because nobody could believe that, a, you know, the description of a hoarder's home and, and these kind of things. Exactly. And my mom was white and she had a job and a college degree and owned her own home and is very intelligent and charming and well-spoken and it was a lot easier to believe that the 13-year-old who had greasy hair and hadn't showered in a week was deranged than it mm -hmm. was to believe that this person, who is a wonderful person in many ways, had 
this problem that was causing so much harm to her daughter. What do you believe the eating disorder was about? I mean, I, I tend to think of these as cries for help in some way. What, what was it for you? I think it's a powerful coping mechanism where the pain, physical pain, physical discomfort can really soothe the emotional turmoil. And I really hated it when people talked about eating disorders as a way to gain control. Also, as a teenager, there's relatively few things that you have control over. And I, I probably had even less control than the average person. And I think a lot of people also have eating disorders without being suicidal, but I was actively suicidal and I wanted to die. I looked around at the world and I didn't want to be a part of it. I didn't want to live in the way that I had been living. And so for me, that urge to destruct was a huge part of starving myself. You seem to have been kind of going on these two tracks that were kind of at odds with one each other. You were self-destructive, and yet you also dreamed of going to an elite school of some sort and to just study your brains out. How did you seize on that idea? And you yourself say that, you know, the normal trajectory for a young, you know, an adolescent in these treatment programs is a GED and community college if they're lucky. And, you know, that's the path. But you imagined something completely different. Why? When my mom was a girl, she had this dream of going to Stanford. And Stanford always seemed really random to me. But when she was growing up, that was one of the only elite co-ed schools that accepted women. And so for her, it was really Stanford or bust. And she applied to college at 16. She applied only to Stanford and she didn't get in. And she ended up going to a small campus of the University of Minnesota. But during my childhood, I heard all the time about how her life would have been different if only she'd gotten into Stanford. And basically every problem that we had was something that she thought Stanford could have solved. And in the way that she told the story, she had come really, really close. But that, you know, she believed Stanford only accepted her only rejected her because she was too young. So I lived kind of with this alternate reality right next to us where my mom had gone to Stanford. She had married a man who was healthy and financially successful and helpful around the home. And we lived in California and she wasn't a hoarder. And I didn't really question whether any of this was accurate. I just took it kind of at face value. And so when my circumstances seemed completely hopeless, that was the way out that I could envision for myself too. What was the reality of your education as you were in these treatment centers? I had gone to a private school, a private religious school until fourth grade. And then I 
learned very little until I, at the point where I was sent to this treatment center. So I was 14 and I had done like one quarter of a year of three years of math and they handed out worksheets. School was four hours a day with a teacher from the special education department. And a lot of the other students were struggling with reading, with basic math, and we were basically left on our, our own to teach ourselves. And if we had a question, we could ask the teacher. We did a lot of read-alouds. And so it was very much not on a college track. We got high school credits, but that wasn't saying much. You then are passed a book about how to ace the ACTs, um, you know, one of the big two standardized tests. There's more to it than just reading a book. You do actually have to know a lot of, you know, have a, a good command of high school, you know, curriculum. So how did you kind of haul yourself up out of this educational hole that you were in? I was at the treatment center when one of the counselors got me this book at the library. And when I got it, my life felt like it suddenly had purpose. For me, the ACT was this concrete goal that I could still achieve, even though I was locked up in this place with bars over the windows and unbreakable glass. And so every day we just had these hours of quiet time, quote unquote, quiet time, where we sat in our rooms by ourselves. And so during that time, I started taking practice tests and luckily I had a good grasp on the reading part, but the math was really, really challenging for me because I just had never encountered a lot of it before. And so really over the next three years, I was on this quest to try to teach myself algebra and geometry. And that to me highlighted one of the main things that I encountered on this journey, which was that I didn't really have time to learn things the regular way, that I was going to have to be extremely strategic, find these hacks, find these shortcuts, find these workarounds. Otherwise, there was no way to get to where I wanted to go. You endured so many setbacks. You know, your beloved ACT book is taken away from you. Um, how did you just keep from breaking? When I was at the residential treatment center, that was where they decided that the ACT book and my other books, novels, poems, that they were unhealthy for me. And they said, you need to focus on your treatment. You need to focus on being a kid. And they took away the things that I loved. And... I felt like they were trying to break me, that they wanted to have this control over me and over the other residents so that we would do what they wanted. And in a way, they did have that control because I played by the rules. I, you know, acted obedient. I tried really hard not to show that I was upset. But especially that early experience, it made me so angry. And I had this conviction that they were wrong. And it made me even more certain that my dream was a good idea 
and that I wanted to get it just to spite them. Emmy, what was the turning point in high school? What was kind of the inflection point from this cycle of treatment centers and no one believing you to suddenly having this, you know, light appear? When I was 14, after spending nine months in this locked treatment facility, I went to foster care. That was a really difficult time for me, but my foster home provided a lot of stability and I was able to take AP classes for the first time and really find refuge in my school and my teachers. One of my favorite teachers was my photo teacher, Miss J. And she suggested that I apply to a photography camp. I found the photography camp at Interlochen and it was a very controversial decision about whether or not I should be allowed to go out of state for camp for six weeks. But eventually my social worker and my psychiatrist helped me leave my foster home to go to the summer camp. And when I was there, I got a scholarship to boarding school. And that was really the turning point for me where it started to seem like maybe my outlandish dream of getting into an Ivy League school could come true. What do you feel like was the thing that gave you hope at that point? Because it just seems at every turn of the page of this book, you really could just give up. Why didn't you? When I studied and when I read books, I felt so much solace. And to me, the idea of having a life where I could be so intellectually engaged, where maybe I could write my own book, to me, that idea was just absolutely intoxicating. And I think, frankly, I would have given up if I could have earlier, but there were so many adults telling me that I had to stay alive that I thought if they're going to make me live and prevent me from killing myself, I'm going to pursue this life that is the life that I want to have. Talk about what it meant to you when you found out you got into Harvard. When I got into Harvard, I was absolutely elated. I was sitting in the Seattle Public Library and I screamed at the top of my lungs and a hundred people probably all throughout this <laughs> library, they all turned around to stare at me. And I just ran down the escalators outside and I was just screaming like, yes, 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 in the rain. And I knew that my life had changed forever and that it was going to be just completely inconceivable to what my life had been before. But it was a pretty quick return to reality since even though my life was going to be so much better, a lot of the conditions hadn't really changed yet. You have an experience in between getting accepted that you go to Europe and you end up getting sexually assaulted. What did that do to your thoughts about yourself and your future? It was really, really difficult for me. I had gone through this period of applying to college and getting into Harvard where I had had to market myself so much. And I had really come face to face with what kind of adversities were 
praised and were considered acceptable and what kinds of things were shameful and should be hidden. So for example, being in foster care and being homeless, you know, just saying those words were things that impressed colleges. But, you know, sexual assaults, which I had previously experienced, and self-harm and mental illness, like all of those things were kind of verboten. And so I really felt when I was assaulted, like I had messed up. Like I was supposed to be this person who had now transcended, who was this overcomer, and that I had put myself in a dangerous situation, that I had let it happen, and that I had kind of tarnished myself and that now I wasn't allowed to like be upset about it or on or traumatized by it because I was going to Harvard. I did have these other good things going for me. And it really changed the way that I had to look at my entire story. In what way? I think that if it hadn't happened, I would have been able to cling to this idea that we're in love with as a society, that people can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, that hard work can lift you out of any bad circumstance, because it really challenged that. I had worked really, really hard. I had had the best possible thing happen to me to get into Harvard, and yet I was still really vulnerable. And I had to put this into context when I was writing the book and really go from thinking about this assault as an anomaly, right, or something that was really about me, to examining exactly how common it is for young people who are on their own, who have been in foster care or homeless, to be victimized. You had built up going to a, a place like Harvard as kind of the the life ring that would save you from drowning. What was the reality for you of your time in at Harvard? I had imagined Harvard as being this intellectual utopia filled with people who only wanted to spend their time studying and a place where I would go there and just immediately have my people and feel this strong sense of belonging. When I arrived, it was totally culture shock. I remember everyone was wearing these brown leather shoes that were just completely hideous. And they weren't sneakers, but they weren't fancy. And I didn't even know what to call them. And it turns out that they were called boat shoes because you could wear them on a boat. And so Harvard was not a place I immediately fit in, but I was able to find over time places where I could belong and could feel like I fit in, like the rowing team and the women in CS club. Computer science, women in computer science at Harvard. The New York Times book review of your book describes it as a deeply ambivalent coming of age novel. And you've hinted at that just now, as you've talked about the um, kind of the, the good news version of your story that's out there. The talk of grit and resilience where young people who've encountered these traumas somehow go on to overcome all of it. You insist um, you're very skeptical and critical of that narrative. Uh, 
to say why. When I got into Harvard, I was the, I wanted to say I was the victim of these human interest stories, but I was the, su I was the subject of these human interest stories of these pieces we've all seen of local girl does good for herself. And I even had the opportunity to win a scholarship from an organization called the Horatio Alger Society that was named after the novelist from the 19th century who, whose books really exemplified pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And we, I went to a convention in Washington, D.C., and there were 104 teenagers there who had been selected from a applicant pool of 50,000. And the 104 of us were proof that anyone could make it. And I was very skeptical of this. Everyone couldn't make it. There were very few of us there, like 0.2%, right? Um, so I started to really question, what does this story about resilience and overcoming, what purpose does it serve in our society? And as I got older, I started to see that this image of the downtrodden child who becomes a successful adult is really often used to say that the status quo is okay. It gives people hope, but in a way that makes it harder for there to be change. What do you think is a more realistic narrative, say, for yourself? I mean, you write in your book, no matter what I achieved, it never got any easier. So what is the takeaway um, that you feel is a more honest story instead of this heroic story of overcoming? We live with this idea that achieving the right thing can kind of redeem a difficult past, that we can make the horrible things that have happened to us worth it with our accomplishments. And going to Harvard and eventually getting a job at Google did make my life a lot better and a lot more comfortable, but it didn't take away the things that had happened before. So for me, the most important part was to accept that I was changed by some of these traumas. They had permanently altered the way that I thought about myself and thought about the world and that that was okay and that was normal and that I wouldn't be a better person if I hadn't been affected. And only when I really reached that understanding was I able to find contentment and happiness in my life on my own terms. Let's talk a little bit about your time at Google, which um, you first came to people's attention probably with an op-ed that you wrote in the New York Times talking about how you were sexually harassed at Google. And um, talk about your job at Google and the fallout from raising the sexual harassment complaint. I was an intern at Google first in 2014, right before my senior year at Harvard. And when I got on campus, I felt like I had arrived at the center of the universe. I really had dreamed about having a job like that. And it was so amazing to have this badge that opened literally all these doors 
and get my Patagonia backpack that marked me as the intern class of 2014. And when I graduated in 2015, I took a full-time role there. I was a software engineer and I was working there for a couple of years when I had to report someone for sexual harassment. Before that time, I had really thought about Google as this perfect institution. I had been through so many more difficult institutions like foster care and um, mental health system. And Google seemed like the anecdote for that. It really felt like a family. And making this HR report, as I wrote about in the op-ed, shattered that illusion. And it showed me that institutions are not families and that the company was going to protect themselves. And I think that it, this entire experience of reporting and there was a drawn out investigation followed by what looked like nothing happening really highlighted the way to me that I could not continue looking to these outside institutions for validation or to try to heal the wounds of my past. That was never going to work. And I might get really, really hurt in the process. In the, when you describe the, um, well, talk about what happened after you raised this sexual harassment complaint. Um, and, and so much of your description of Google, I mean, it's, it's kind of creepy. You know, you describe this all encompassing, all knowing, it becomes your life. You had a Google doctor, you ate at the Google cafeterias morning, noon, and night. You went on Google outings and weekend trips. Um, I, you know, I'm, as I'm sure you have, I've read The Circle by Dave Eggers, which describes this almost cultish community where your individual identity is replaced by your sense of being part of this privileged clan, uh, the Google clan. So what happened when you stepped out of line and said it wasn't all so perfect? After a couple of days, after speaking to my manager, an HR complaint was filed. And after that point, I was no longer allowed to talk to my manager about it. He was not the harasser. He had been really, really supportive of me. And it was this incredibly lonely time while HR was investigating things. From the time that I spoke to my manager to hearing the verdict, it was about three months long. And I had to sit next to my harasser for several weeks. I was not allowed to talk to anyone else about it. I was told that people could get in trouble and get fired because of me if I you know, tried to confide in anyone. Um, and so it was this really grueling process that brought up so many negative feelings from my past that I write about in acceptance. So you weren't um, you weren't exactly ostracized, but it kind of was made clear to you that you were no longer deemed a team player, which in many ways is the kiss of death at a place like Google. It seems from is that. A fair description? Yeah. 
what happened too was that they encouraged me to go on mental health leave. And this was a phenomena that became better known last year when there were multiple people who reported sexual harassment or racial discrimination and then were referred to counseling. And, you know, at the time I thought that it was just me, that they could like see inside of me and see my past and see what happened when I was a teenager because it really was so reminiscent of the situation when I was a child and my mom brought me to these doctors and said, there's no problem, Emmy is sick. I, I couldn't help but feel at that point as I'm reading that, that they don't know who they're messing with. You know, this is not your first rodeo. And unlike many uh, young people who find themselves in that situation, you had been there before. Was there a strength or wisdom that you were able to draw on from not that long previously that enabled you to push through and fight back? I had been in all of these situations where people hurt me, but I didn't have any recourse or any hope at all of recourse. And so when this happened at Google, first of all, there were other young women involved. And if it had just been me, if I had been the only one who had experienced problems with this guy, I don't know if I would have spoken up. But especially when there were younger women I just felt really fiercely protective of them in a way that I wish that somebody had been protective of me. And I was skeptical that anything positive would happen. And I kind of let myself believe that Google as an institution would be different than the institutions I had come from. And it turned out that Google was basically the same as every other institution, but that I was different. And I found myself strong enough to stick up for myself, to deal with the fallout. And even when it meant that I felt I had to leave Google and these people that I loved there, that I was still going to be okay. You make the case that you don't want to be seen as an overcomer. You don't want this to be seen as another, you know, Horatio Alger story. So what do you want people to take away from your memoir? I hope that people re-examine their relationship with resilience. Grit is a huge buzzword right now. And it's something that people turn to as a solution for everything from depression to lead poisoning. We really do want to encourage inner strength and have you know healthy kids strong families but i don't think telling people to be resilient is a good way to get there and so looking at my story as i wrote about an acceptance there were all of these people who helped me and who helped me to stay true to myself to work hard to have places to stay and i hope that when people are encountering others who are suffering or going through a rough time, that their thoughts turn to how they might be able to help them and support them instead of reflexively thinking that individuals should help themselves. Could you talk about one person who you think back on 
who really made a difference. And I, I ask this because many of us encounter people going through tough times and often don't know what to say or do. What person comes to mind for you and what did they do that made a difference for you? I had a mentor who I call Annette, and she came into my life when I was 14 and I was at the treatment center. And I had asked my social worker for a poetry mentor who could help me with my poems, but there clearly were not any poetry mentors available, but my county did have a mentorship program. And so she had signed up to help a struggling teenager. And in our very first meeting, she was super upfront with me. She was like, I don't like art and I'm not going to be able to help you with art. She's just, I don't like it, you know? And I was a little taken aback, especially by her bluntness, but I was also just in awe of her. You know, she was a physician from Germany and I thought everyone who's from Europe must be super cultured. And so we started our relationship from there and she would take me on walks. She would pick me up from my foster home to go to lunch once a month or so. And really just having this stable adult presence in my life was just invaluable. And when it came time to apply to college, she was able to write me this letter documenting my history. And colleges really believed her because she had that credibility. So even though she was not the perfect poetry mentor I had dreamed of, and she wasn't able to do everything that I possibly could have needed an adult to do for me. Her support just really made it bearable and really helped me get out. Are you still in touch with her? I am. And you say you refer to her as Annette. Um, why don't you use her real name? She's a very private person. So I want to respect that. What's her response to reading your memoir? It was actually pretty hard for her. I think I hadn't been as honest, maybe, about some of the hard stuff because I didn't want to sound like I was complaining. I didn't want to waste her time. And I think if I were reading a book like this, it would be kind of devastating to me to know I did everything I could for this kid and yet they still had to suffer so much. We've talked about what you hope others take away from your story. How do you carry this forward and pay forward the help you receive from people like Annette, people who probably didn't know that they made that much difference? I think my first step is with trying to live with honesty about some of these systems and institutions that I've gone through and trying to reduce stigma around mental illness, self-harm, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Mentorship is also really important to me. I have a writing mentor who is just one of my favorite people in the world. And I really hope to continue that and to increase, increase the number of young people that I can work with reach. Well, Emmy Neatfeld, thanks so much for joining us on the Vermont Conversation and congrats on the publication of your new memoir. 
Thank you so much for having me.